You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Uh, Glad to have you uh, with us. I want to dive in now to Nehemiah chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 1. And we'll read down to verse 13. Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters, we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our house to get grain because of the famine. And then there were also those who said, we borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we're forcing our sons and daughters to be slaves. And some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it for the men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry and these words, said Nehemiah. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you're exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them. And I said to them, we, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers who've been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent. and They could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing you're doing is not good. Are you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and their percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests, and I made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And they praised the Lord, and the people did as they had promised. Let's pray together one more time. Father, we just want to stop and once again try to center ourselves around your presence. We know you're here. But we know it's hard for us to be here, especially in a day like this where we have a lot of activities and things going on. And so we pray that right now, Holy Spirit, that you would arrest our attention, that you would set our heart on your word, and that you would move through this teaching in a way that would leave us transformed more into the image of your son, Jesus, for our good and for your glory. And it's in Christ's name that we pray and ask these things. Amen. In your opinion, who is the biggest enemy to the church? Is it ISIS? Is it liberal media? Is it corrupt politicians? Is it Planned Parenthood? Is it the rapid increase of those who would identify religiously as none? Who in your mind, that's a question I want you to ponder, who in your mind more than anyone else poses the biggest threat to the church being the church that God has called us to be? And before you answer that question, I just want to remind you of the context and the story that we're in in the book of Nehemiah. In chapter 1, what we've discovered is that Nehemiah finds out that the walls in Jerusalem have been burnt to the ground. 
And because this man, Nehemiah, is a Jew, because he is a man of holy ambition, because his heart breaks for the things that breaks the heart of God, when he hears about the walls being torn down because he knows the city cannot prosper apart from these city walls, he weeps. And it says that he would fast and pray for months. And then after four months of praying and fasting in chapter 2, we see that Nehemiah believes that God is calling him to be an answer to his own prayers, to step up and do something about the brokenness that he sees in the world. And so Nehemiah in chapter 2 goes to the Persian king, the most powerful man on the face of the earth. And he says, would you please release me from my position as a cupbearer and let me go back to Jerusalem to help rebuild the wall. And because the good hand of God was on Nehemiah in chapter 2, we see the king granted him the request. And then in chapter 3, Nehemiah goes back to Jerusalem. He organizes 40 different working groups to begin to rebuild the wall. And in chapter 3, you see this massive momentum as now this work of God is off and running. But then in chapter 4, what we discover is the reality that any time that you seek to walk by faith, you will be opposed by people who walk by sight. You cannot do the work of God apart from persecution, apart from people coming up against you. And that's what we see in chapter 4, is that the people of Jerusalem, the Jews who are trying to rebuild this wall, begin to face major opposition, not just from the north, but also the south, not just from the east, but also the west. People are coming at them. They want to kill them. They want to stop the work. However, in chapter 4, the people keep building. They keep pressing forward. They do not get discouraged. But then we come to chapter 5. And in chapter 5, we are not going to see one single mention of the wall being built. And what I want you to understand this morning is the reason the work stopped. The reason there's no mention of the wall being built, of the people doing the work that God has called them to do, listen, is not going to be because of an external opposition, but rather because of an internal disobedience that is among the people. And therefore, what that tells us, as you think about that question that I asked you, who is the biggest threat, what it tells us then is the number one threat that we face as a church today is not the threat of what the world can do to us, but it's the threat of what we can do to ourselves as simply compromising the truth that God has given us to obey. That's what we're going to see this morning in this passage, that nothing will destroy the culture that God wants to create faster, and nothing will tear down the purposes of God in your life quicker than unrepentant sin among God's people. I was in Seattle a couple weeks ago, and I was sitting in a church building that used to be filled with thousands of people. And I'm not going to give you the church's name or the pastor's name, but basically there was a church in Seattle that was started back in the 90s, and within probably 10 to 15 years, it grew to 15,000 people um, in five different states. And the lead pastor of this church who planted it uh, became an author. He started different networks and, and all sorts of resources that blessed millions of people, myself included. But then uh, it was discovered that he had some sin in his life, and whenever the elders came to him about that, I don't know if it's because he felt untouchable or what the deal was, but he didn't repent of that sin. And as a result, that man in that church no longer exists today. And as I was sitting there, I was reminded a couple weeks ago of how, you know, it does not matter how much momentum you have. It does not matter how gifted you are. It doesn't matter how many successes you've had from your past. If we are a people who will continue to violate the commands of God, if we will kind of adopt this lifestyle where I'm just going to do things my own way, it is just a matter of time, the Bible says, before your life will begin to crumble. And if you don't want to take my word for it, I just want you to listen to the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 6, where Jesus says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you to do? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he's like. 
He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and it could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears my word and does not do it is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the streams broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. So happy Mother's Day, everyone. If it's your first time with us today, welcome. It's just going to be a light message on repentance, okay? So uh, knows exactly what you were hoping for whenever you woke up. So let's dive into it, okay? Nehemiah chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Keep in mind, the wall is being built up to this point. The work of God is progressing just as Nehemiah had hoped it would, right? Despite outside persecution. But then we come to chapter 5, verse 1, and it says, There arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. And what was the outcry about? Well, we see verse 2 and following. For there were those who said, With our sons and our daughters are many... So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There were also those who said, we're mortgaging our fields and our vineyards and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And then there were also, verse 4, those who said, we've borrowed money for the king's taxes and our fields and our vineyards. So basically what's going on here is this. Because Israel's enemies have cut off trade with them, there is now famine in the land. And and what's happening is the workers are now beginning to complain because they have a lot of mouths to feed around their table, but they have no food to put on that table. And according to verse 3, some of them are becoming so desperate, they're literally selling their land and their houses just to make enough money to put food on the table. And on top of that, if having no food isn't bad enough, verse 4, it says they are now also being taxed so heavily by the Persian king that they're having to borrow money just to pay their taxes. So needless to say, the people here are are, are suffering probably beyond what most of us could even imagine. And I just want to stop right here and say this. I think it's important that we get this today because I think for many in the American church, they're being taught something like this. If you will just sit in the will of God, if you will trust him and be faithful, you'll be healthy, wealthy, and prosperous. Sounds good, but you know what the problem is with that? The Bible. Because the Bible does not teach that. In fact, what Jesus says is, in this life, you will have many troubles. In 1 Peter chapter 4, the apostle Peter says this, Do not be surprised. He's writing to the church, by the way. Do not be surprised when trials come your way. The truth is, when you decide to follow Jesus, when you choose to try to live within the will of God, sometimes things will go really, really well for you, and sometimes things will go really, really bad for you. And so again, welcome. Glad you're here this morning. I hope you're encouraged so far. This is what we see in Nehemiah chapter 5. We have a group of faithful people. All they're trying to do, guys, is do the will of God. They're clinging to the promises of God, and yet they're watching their kids starve. And to make matters worse, in verse 5, not only are the Jews being taxed beyond what they can pay, not only are they losing their lands and their homes and their food, but also in verse 5 we see they begin to lose their sons and daughters to slavery. And here's the most horrific part about all of this. The suffering we see happening in uh, in chapter 5, the suffering the Jews are experiencing, are not the result of their neighboring nations who want to kill them. But listen to this, guys. Rather, according to verse 1, the reason they are suffering, the reason they're being oppressed, the reason they're being hurt is because of their own Jewish brothers. In other words, the reason the work of God comes to a halt is because this greedy, upper-class Jewish 
group of people who are in their midst are beginning to take advantage of those who are less fortunate around them. Keep in mind, these, by the way, the Jews are considered God's people. So it would kind of be like this. Imagine you're in a church setting like this, and you see a wealthy person sitting next to someone who's less fortunate. And rather than the wealthy person looking at that person who's less fortunate and barely making ends beat and barely able to feed their kids, rather than looking at them and saying, hey, God, what can I do to help? They're actually looking and saying, hey, I wonder if there's a way I can make more profit off of them as they're in this, you know, situation that they're in. That's what's literally happening right here among the people. And because of this, the work shuts down. Because of the Jews' greed, because of their sin, the work stops. And this is where Nehemiah gets involved. And in verse 6, he says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. Just for the record, there's an appropriate time for legitimate anger. When you read in the scripture, sometimes we think Jesus is like this, like, almost like people you know, portray him almost like this hippie, like, hey man, just peace, love, and happiness. But there are times where Jesus, like for example, would walk into a temple and see people trying to make gain or oppress others in the name of God. And he would start flipping over tables and run everybody out with a whip. All right, so there's an appropriate time to get angry. There's a time where you should get ticked off by the brokenness and the injustice that you see around you. A couple uh I guess it was last week we had some Ethiopians come into our church office. Our missional community works with refugees and immigrants in, in our city. And Adam and I are sitting there, and, and one of the families that we're working with told another family that we could help them. And so this husband and wife, um, they come in. I mean, uh, they're you know, Muslims, um, and, and so it's you know unique already in itself. They're walking into a church seeking help, and they've got 10 children. Uh, all of them are under—I'm sorry, eight children, all under the ages of 11. And this woman begins to cry. And Adam's sitting there too. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it was heartbreaking, was it not? She just begins to weep. And she has kind of broken English. But basically what had happened is she was told, and I'm not going to go into all the details, that she was going to get kicked out of her house because they had too many children, basically, to, to fit into this one home. And they had no other house. They had nothing else available. No one would help them. They went to several different places. And, and they were just going to be homeless. And she just would cry. My family, they'd be destroyed, right? I mean... And, and, and when I just found myself as she was sharing it, Adam would be the same way. When we, just, we just got angry, just thinking about the injustice of that. And, and so as a result, I texted my missional community. I said, we've got to pray about this. And then we actually went to bat for them, and they were able to not only keep their house, but now we're getting them a bigger house for their children, right? But that's all the result of a righteous anger, of saying, like, man, this is not the way things should be. And that's what Nehemiah is experiencing here. I mean, he's experiencing a real legitimate anger. But then I love this. He says, I was angry when I heard their outcries, but look what he does with his anger. Verse 7, I took counsel with myself. In other words, before Nehemiah did anything, right, he pondered these things in his mind. He was angry, but he didn't just like fly off the handle. He didn't just have this knee-jerk reaction to make a fool of himself and others, but rather he, he thinks before he talks. He thinks before he acts. And there's a good parenting technique today if you wanted like a Mother's Day sermon, like that's about as close as it's going to get, right? When, you're, when your kids make you angry, think before you talk or act. This is what Nehemiah does here. He literally stops and he says, okay, I, I just imagine him pondering God's word and saying, okay, what does God say about this kind of thing? That's going on here. What would God say? Uh, what, what is an appropriate action I need to take in light of who God is and what he has called me to do? So that's what happens in verse 7. He says, I took counsel with myself. And then after thinking on it for a while, he says, I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. That was the rich Jews who are oppressing those less fortunate. And I said to them, you're exacting, you're exacting interest 
each from his brother, and then I held a great assembly against them. And so what Nehemiah does here is he says, look, you're supposed to be the people of God, and yet literally you're disregarding the word of God. Any Jew would have known Deuteronomy 23 and Leviticus 25, which God's law clearly states that you shall not exact interest from your brother. They knew this law. They knew they were not supposed to be making gain at their less fortunate Jewish brothers. And yet Nehemiah says, this is exactly what you're doing. He says, you know what God's word says. And literally, you're doing the exact opposite of what you've been told to do. And then he just keeps laying it on in verse 8. He says, in verse 8, I told them, we as far as we are able have bought back Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And so he says, Man, guys, have you lost your minds? He says, literally, don't you realize the reason we got kicked out of this land to begin with and the reason we were sold into slavery to the Babylonians and the Assyrians is because of our disobedience to God. And yet God in his grace brings us back into the land. And now, right, not only are we not being sold into slavery, we're selling each other into slavery. And it's all because of our disobedience to God. It's like, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And then I love their response. If you look in verse 8, after he's just like hammering them with his truth, this is verse 8, they were silent and could not find a word to say. When I read that this week, I thought about this picture of my uh, son and daughter from a couple years ago. Um, do we have that? We can put that. Okay, there they are. This is about two and a half years ago. This is my oldest and my middle child. And this is right after we caught them uh, stealing some blow pops from our cabinet, okay? And uh, as you can see, I mean, they were caught red-handed, right? And purple and green and pink-handed. And, and, and they're sitting there. And, and look at Wyatt's face. I mean, he's terrified. That's his terrified look. He don't know what's going to happen next, but he knows it's probably not going to be well. And Nora's just like longing to be able to have those blow pops. But here's the thing. When we busted them, this is like the only moment in their life they were completely silent. Because they knew they were busted. I mean, in this moment, I, I mean, they, they, they knew they were wrong. And so they didn't try to justify themselves. They weren't shifting blame to others. They knew that they had been caught. They had been busted. And that's kind of the picture of what I see going on right here in verse 9 or verse 8. It says they were silent and they could not find a word to say. So Nehemiah says, I've got something to say. He says, this thing that you were doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the, of the, taunts of the enemies of other nations? Notice in here the reason that Nehemiah is angry. Do you notice? Nehemiah is not ticked off because they've inconvenienced him. How many times do we get mad because somebody inconveniences our life? It's not why he's upset. He's not angry because they've inconvenienced him. He's not angry because he had these grand plans of building a wall and now they've stopped his plans. But ultimately in verse 9, what we see is the reason Nehemiah is angry is one, because he says you're not walking in the fear of God. The God who, who holds our lives together, the God who created us, the God who gives us everything that we have. You should be walking in fear of him and you're not. And then verse 2, he's angry because he says, and clearly, not only are you not walking in fear of God, but you don't care about the fame of God. He says, like, we are supposed to be a light to the nations, and yet you guys, because of your sin and your greed, are making us a laughingstock to the nations. Literally, you're giving God a bad name. And so he goes on in verse 10 and he says... At the end of verse 10, let us now abandon this exacting of interest. Let's set aside this sin. Let's set aside this greed. And then verse 11, and let's return to them 
This very day their fields and their vineyards and their olive orchards and their houses and their percentage of money and their grain and their wine and oil that you have been exacting from them. In other words, Nehemiah says, you all need to repent right now. Everything that you've taken, you need to give back to those you've taken from. And by the way, that's what true repentance is, just to be clear. True repentance is not saying, oh, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. True repentance is saying, I'll do whatever I need to do in order to make this thing right. And that's what we see Nehemiah call them to here and then in verse 12. In verse 12, look how they respond. And they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do what you say For the record, guys, biblical repentance always leads to radical obedience. Biblical repentance always leads to radical obedience. That's what we see right here. And then if we keep reading in verse 12, Nehemiah said, I called the priest and I made them swear to do as they promised. I also shook out the fold of my garments and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep his promise. So may he be shaken out emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord, and the people did just as they had promised. It's a beautiful passage, isn't it? Because in the beginning, what you have is this great outcry of oppression now turned into a great cry of worship. You have these cries of injustice and disunity now turned into cries of praise to God. So it really is an awesome, and it's a beautiful and magnificent story. But listen, I also think it's an incredibly convicting and an incredibly sobering story that we need to take to heart today. And there are a couple things that I just want us to take away from this passage and then we'll be done. A couple implications I think God wants us to take hold of before we leave this morning. The first one is this. Is I think the first way that God wants us to respond in Nehemiah chapter 5 is to respond with our own personal repentance. The reality is God cannot stand disobedience among his people. The person in the Bible who is committed to disobedience, his name is Satan. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. We are called friends of God, guys. And according to scripture, we prove that we love God... And that we want a relationship with him through biblical obedience, through trusting him and doing what he's called us to do. Sometimes I think we read the Old Testament, we're like, oh my God, the Old Testament, what a beat down, right? Just laws and rules. And then we look at the New Testament, we're like, oh man, I'm so glad I don't have to worry about that stuff anymore. I'm so glad I'm under grace and I'm not under law. And hey, listen, truth is we are under grace, We're not under the law, but if you think being under grace means you have a license to sin, then you don't understand grace. In Titus chapter 2, for example, let me just read this one to you. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. This is the Apostle Paul writing. He says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. We love that verse. We champion that verse. We put it on a coffee mug or a t-shirt or a bumper sticker, right? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Hallelujah. Amen. Let's let's be dismissed, right? Don't read any further than that. Well, but then you come to verse 12. The grace of God has appeared. What, What should the grace of God be doing in our lives right now? Let me tell you. Verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness 
and worldly passions and to live however we want to live? Nope. To live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. A lot of people, man, I'm telling you, they, 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 they think Jesus literally came to this earth so that we could all just take it easy. And the people who say that, I'm like, man, have you ever just read the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, Jesus is like collection of teachings. I mean, literally, what you will see is when Jesus teaches, he doesn't, intensi- or he doesn't relax the requirements of obedience. He intensifies it. For example, in the Old Testament, the Bible says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus comes on the scene. He looks at all these men who think they're all pious and amazing because they've never physically cheated on their wives. And he says, well, I'll tell you right now, if you've even lusted after someone else, you're guilty of adultery. What? You've heard it said, thou shalt not commit murder. Okay, good. I haven't ever done that. I've never physically killed anyone. Jesus says, well, if you've even had anger in your heart, you're guilty of murder. So Jesus does not lower the bar of obedience. He raises it because what does Jesus focus on? More than he cares about our behavior, what does he care about? He cares about the heart. He cares about the motive behind why we do what we do. Even the very good stuff where everyone else is going, thank God for that person. He's still looking and saying, but where's your heart behind that? Because you can do a bunch of really good stuff and have a heart that's far from me. That's what Jesus becomes. I mean, that's what he comes and he focuses on. So I just want to ask you, I feel compelled to do this right now. Maybe right now, I just want to ask you, um, what's going on in your own heart right now? Are there any areas in your life right now that the Holy Spirit's convicting you of? I believe that's happening right now in the room as I'm talking about this. Are there things right now, are there places in your life where you know you're doing something God has clearly told you not to do, or places where you're not doing something you know God has clearly told you to do? Is there something in your life, maybe right now it's a sin and you're tolerating it simply because our culture tolerates it? Maybe for some of you this morning, it's a consumeristic mindset. For some of you in here, you filled out your membership renewal form at the beginning of the year, but you have no intentions of actually trying to to fulfill that. For some of you in here today, you're here, and the reason you're here is because you like the music better than the church down the street, but as soon as something better comes along, you're going there. Or it's a better kids' ministry or whatever else. For some of you in here, you are incredibly gifted. You should be feeding others by now. And yet you're still saying, feed me. You're still sitting back and you're doing far less than what you actually have been created to do because you don't want to get out of your comfort zone. Maybe for some of you in here today, you are abusing the grace of God. You grew up in a legalistic church environment where you were constantly told you have to jump through this hoop and that hoop and that hoop in order to be loved by God. And now that you're hearing about the grace of God, you're swinging the pendulum the other way. You're getting drunk. You're watching things you shouldn't be watching. You're laughing at things that God hates. And you're doing it all under the banner of Christian freedom, which actually is not freedom. You're enslaving yourself. Maybe for others in here, you need to repent of turning a blind eye to oppression in our city. Some of you are in missional communities right now that are stagnant. And it's not because you're not trying. It's because, honestly, you just don't care, if you can be honest, about the oppression of people in the city. And so you look at poverty, and you look at single moms struggling to feed their children. You look at refugees. You look at the hundreds of kids who are stuck in foster care, and you're kind of like that person we talked about a few weeks ago in Hotel Rwanda who looks and says, oh, isn't that pitiful? And then you go back to eating your dinner. And I don't know, I don't know what it may be for you, but I want you to right now to ask yourself honestly, what is it in my life that maybe the Holy Spirit's trying to convict me of? Where is there sin in my life and in my heart? And I want to encourage you in just a moment to confess that, to repent of that sin. The second thing I think we need to take away from this passage is not just personal repentance, but 
if we're going to see God do great things in us and through us, we need to be a people and we need to be a church that is known for lovingly, lovingly confronting the sins of others within this church. I've shared this story before. I don't have a better example. If I did, I'd come up with it, but it's the best one I got. And so uh, when I was in ninth grade, my mom wakes me up. She's crying. She's yelling. She says, your brother's dead. I go into the bathroom. My brother's underneath uh, bath water. He's immersed in that. So I pull him up out of the bath water. I begin CPR on him immediately. Fortunately, he eventually set up. He spit up water. And we found out later he had seizures. And that was going on. I went into the water, took it in. So he's on medication now. He's doing great. I mean, if you know him. But imagine in that, in that moment, as, as a ninth grader, my mom comes in the room. And she says, she's crying. She says, your brother's dead. He's dead. He's dead. Do something. And I look. And I'm like, woman, I've got five more minutes of sleep. Or imagine I looked and I said, that's your job. You're his mom. Am I his keeper? Or, or you're, you're older than me. You're wiser than me. You should know that stuff better than I do. Right? You're the one more qualified for that. I'm not going to go in there. And besides, that's going to be awkward and weird. He's in the bathtub, right? So I don't want to do that. I don't want, I'm going to get messy. I'm going to get wet. I don't want to go in. It's too scary. You look and you say, well, Jared, nobody would do that. Well, according to James, and we see a brother or sister in sin and we do nothing about it, it's literally like us leaving our brother or sister drowning in a bathtub. That's what the scripture says. I think of Jesus' words to the church of Thyatira in Revelation where there's this woman named Jezebel who's committing sexual morality, and Jesus seems to be more upset, not with Jezebel, but with the church who's tolerating the sexuality, the sexual immorality. I think about Dietrich Bonhoeffer who says this. He says, nothing, because all sin leads to death, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. He says, that's cruel. And nothing, therefore, can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. Because all sin leads to death, the truth is, guys, and please hear this, we can have a great vision, we can have a great facility, we can have great programs. We can have great structures. We can have a killer band. We can be all about missional communities. But if we're flippant on sin, if we begin to tolerate sin in our lives and the lives of others rather than being willing to step up and lovingly confront it, God will not bless this. He won't. Because Nehemiah feared God more than he feared man, And because Nehemiah cared about God's reputation more than he cared about his own reputation, he was willing to stand up in a day like this and be the bad guy because he was willing to lovingly confront his brothers and sisters. And fortunately for him, because they had the Spirit of God working in their lives in that moment, they repented. And the work would continue. I'm convinced, I'll just say this, a little side trail, um, I think a lack of loving confrontation within the church is what's killing the church's reputation right now in America, for the record. I, I, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the church does not have a great, great reputation, and if you don't think so, just go Google Christians are dot, 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 and look at the first 10 pages that come up on Google. Christians are hateful, Christians are hypocritical, Christians are sick, Christians are killing us, Christians are oppressing. The reputation is not great, the church as a whole in America is not doing great, and honestly, here's why I think that is, is because we are a people who care more about the sins of those outside of the walls than we do about the sins inside the walls. Some of you, and I see it and I get it, but you look at things that maybe Donald Trump has said about women or what the media says he says about women. I don't know. I want to get into the whole bait whether he said it or didn't say it, but whatever. 
And you, get, you look at that and you get so mad, I can't believe Donald Trump would say that, and then you go look at pornography. I can't believe he'd treat women that way. And then you go and you engage in something just as bad, if not worse. Some of you, you get so angry, I cannot believe this country would try to legalize gay marriage, and then you won't even focus on your own marriage. You won't do what God's called you to do within your own marriage. And I can go on and on. Listen, I'm not saying we shouldn't care about the issues outside of these walls. We should. That's not my point. So don't put words in my mouth. Here's just my point. Listen, you can do everything about your holiness. You can do basically nothing about other people's holiness. And I honestly believe if we would be a church that would take our holiness seriously, if we would take our sin seriously, our pursuit of Jesus seriously, if we would focus first on what's going on within these walls, we would see more transportation or transformation taking place beyond these walls. Read your Bible. The gospel always starts inward and then it moves outward. And so I would just say this. Before we weep about the culture of America, let us be a people that weeps about the culture of our own hearts. For some of you, you believe that Jesus is just going to accept you as you are and never ask you to change. And I don't know where you got that from. Some of you think that because you prayed a prayer when you were a kid that now you can live however you want to live and God's never going to call you beyond where you are right now. You made that Jesus up. That's not the real Jesus. You quit reading the Gospels. The real Jesus, yes, loves you enough to accept you as you are, but he loves you too much to keep you there. And so this morning, because the Spirit is calling you to repent, because he's calling you to more, I want to call you to the same thing. I want to call you right now to confess a sin that you know in your life, not necessarily to me or anybody else, but to Jesus Christ. Confess your sin to him and repent of that. And I'm not talking about fake, false repentance where you're just like, oh, I'm sorry, slap on the wrist, bad me. I'm talking about a true repentance. A repentance that says, God, I've... I have sinned against the God of the universe, the only one who loves me and truly cares for me and created me and has given me everything. And I've chosen to worship the creation over my creator. I've turned my back on him. I'm talking about a repentance that says, man, my heart breaks because I know I've broke the heart of God. And as a result of that, not sitting in guilt and shame and fear, but actually now giving that sin to him and tasting the forgiveness that he wants to give you. The good news is this morning, guys, it doesn't matter what sins you've committed. If you will recognize your sin before God and you will take that to him, you can have forgiveness today. In Acts 13.38, Paul says that through this man, Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. Isn't that great news today? No matter who you are or what you've done, if you will trust in the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, if you will give what you have over to him and you will turn from that and say, I I just want to hand it off to you. I want to give it to you right now. You can taste forgiveness. And not just can you experience forgiveness, you can experience freedom. You can be free today from shame and guilt and fear and addiction. You can begin to be freed from the power of sin in your life. Forgiveness and freedom really is available to every person in here today, no matter who you are or what you've done, and it's found in Jesus. As we partake of communion this morning, here's what I want you to to, to contemplate, okay? We're about to partake of communion, as we do every week. 
And here's what I want you to think about. Nehemiah chapter 5, verse 14 through 19. Listen to this. I don't have time to read it. don't have time to go any further. But in verse 14 through 19, we see that Nehemiah becomes the governor of the land in Judah, which means he has an incredible position and power and influence. And you know what he does with his position and his power? Rather than oppressing people, he uses his resources and his riches to bless them. And there's this great line in verse 16, and I'll be done. Great line in verse 16 where we see in this incredible act of generosity and grace, Nehemiah, rather than going to the Jews and taking food off their table like all the other wealthy Jews were doing, rather than taking food off of their table, he actually brings them into, their home, into his own home and invites them to eat food from his own table. That's a picture of the gospel. That is what Jesus Christ has done for you and me. Through his life, death, and resurrection, literally, guys, we were left outside. But the Bible says Jesus, though he was rich, made himself poor so that by his poverty we might become rich. Jesus gave up everything that he had so that we can have everything that he deserves. We now, you now, can have a seat around the table. You can feast on Christ. You can experience the salvation and the satisfaction that you were longing for. And if you're here today and you've already trusted in Jesus and you're still trusting in Jesus, and by the way, I say that intentionally, just because you trusted in Jesus 10 years ago doesn't mean you're still trusting in the day, but if you're still trusting in Jesus and putting your hope in Jesus, come and partake of communion. Tear off a piece of bread. Come around this table. Dip it in the juice. We have two tables in the front, two in the back, a gluten-free option for you. Partake of that. Be reminded of the forgiveness and freedom you have in Christ. The one who's a greater leader than Nehemiah. But if you're here today and you've not trusted in Jesus, you're not a Christian and you're not around this table. But the reason you're not around this table is not because we don't want you there and it's not because God doesn't want you there. The reason you're not around the table of God is because of your own pride. That's it. There's a seat available for you. God would love you there. We as a church would love you there. Amen? Ten of you, excited about that, great. <laughs> rest of us, I promise, we're just a little bit slower, right? We would love you around the table. And so if you want more information about how you can enter into a relationship with God, how you can experience the forgiveness and freedom, I'll be up here in the front. I would love to talk with you. I know Adam will be here as well. Um, you can talk with the person that you came with. But I'm going to ask you to stand with me. I want to pray for us as the band comes forward. And let's just have one moment of silence if we can. Before we try to figure out if we're going to Chili's or where else we're running off to, let's not escape this moment. I think the Spirit wants to do something in the lives of at least one in here. Would you just take a moment and allow the Spirit to examine your heart? Are there areas right now that the Holy Spirit is convicting you of where you know though maybe 20 other people in your missional community are doing it? It's wrong, and you need to stop. Are there any places in your life where you know God is calling you to more and you're sitting back in a comfort zone? Are there any areas where you're not trusting Jesus, you're not fully surrendering something, whether it be your time or your talents or your treasures? And I just want to encourage you right now to confess that to God. To just say, I'm sorry. And that I want to trust you more. And that I want to find forgiveness that's found in Jesus Christ. And trust that if you mean that in your heart and you seek to turn from that, that you are forgiven, that you don't have to leave here in shame, guilt, or fear. Father, I thank you so much for every man, woman, and child that is in this room. I thank you for the beautiful picture we had up here of these children. I loved seeing them wiggle and 
make noise, and that's a sign of life. You are the giver of life. Thank you for that blessing. And thank you for the life that's found in your son, Jesus. I pray that we will believe that truly it is there. It is there that we can find in him everything that we were created for. Please, God, please, for the people in this room who are believing the lie, and I know that that's me on certain times and occasions and days, would you please replace these lies that we tend to believe about you with the truth of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. And I pray that that would transform us more and more into the image of your son. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.